Welcome to CPAC Today in Politics. Coming up, Health Canada authorizes the use of the Pfizer vaccine for children aged 12 to 15. This is the first vaccine authorized in Canada for the prevention of COVID-19 in children and marks a significant milestone in Canada's fight against the pandemic. Canada's budget watchdog says the federal budget will lead to decades of higher debt. After taking into consideration budget measures, we arrive at deficits that are $5.6 billion higher than what the government has released in the budget last month. And the immigration minister announces new streams to boost the number of people coming to Canada. The creation of a pathway to permanent residence for up to 90,000 essential workers and recent international student graduates. The size, the speed, and the scope of this initiative is unprecedented. It's Thursday, May the 6th. I'm Mark Sutcliffe. Let's get right to the top political stories this morning. I'm joined by National Post columnist John Iveson. John, thank you for being with us today. Morning, Mark. Let's start by talking about vaccines, which, of course, is top of mind for all Canadians. Um, there uh, continues to be uh, a battle for, for the public's attention uh, between people who are advocating that you should take the first available vaccine and, of course, there was the report earlier in the week that suggested some people perhaps should wait. There are there are people expressing concern about the AstraZeneca vaccine because there have been Canadians who have experienced blood clots after receiving the vaccine, although health officials reassure everyone that it's incredibly safe and that the risks associated with getting COVID are much higher uh, than getting vaccinated. And yesterday, Health Canada announced that it was approving the Pfizer vaccine for uh, for teenagers. Um, and so we're looking at the prospect of younger people being vaccinated all the time across the country. Where do you think we stand on all of this? And are we are we starting to turn the corner in terms of the number of people who have been vaccinated or are about to be vaccinated in Canada? Yeah, well, there's obviously a lot there. I think um, that we are turning the corner. And I think that, you know, you could you could see why the Advisory Council said what it said in that we are due to get, you know, 25 million doses or so of, of Pfizer and Moderna mRNA vaccines in the next couple of months. And that should just about do uh, everybody. So there is there is an option to wait. At the same time, that mixed messaging, I think, was was completely out of step with, uh, with what the government had been saying to that point. Uh, you would have hoped that the, the health minister would have reiterated the point that um, you take the first vaccine that's offered to you because the benefits outweigh the, outweigh the risks. That has been their line the whole time. She didn't walk that line. Um, you know, clearly there are, there are risks. There have been newly reported blood clot deaths in New Brunswick and Alberta. But we know there are risks. There are risks to getting out of bed in the morning. And I, and I think that... Uh, as has been pointed out repeatedly, the benefits of vaccines, including AstraZeneca, outweigh the risks. And, you know, we've already had 1.7 million Canadians inoculated with AstraZeneca. So I think that creating this kind of two-tier system was not a, was not a great idea. But, you know, if you are concerned, and I think the, the, the Advisory Council made a good point when it came to pregnant women, for example, uh, you know, pregnant women should get Pfizer and not AstraZeneca. They're they're at risk of complications, and obviously there are two two lives at risk, or just one. So, 
So I can see both sides of it, but I think it was a, a, a real communications mix-up. And um, the good news is that we we are turning the corner. The, the, the number of Pfizer doses being delivered is 2 million a week now, and will rise to 2.4 million a week, I think, in June. So, you know, there is a steady stream of vaccine coming in, and as long as it comes in on schedule, we should be in a much, much better place by, uh, by mid-June. All right, let's turn to the country's finances. And the parliamentary budget officer uh, said yesterday that the Liberal government's deficits are likely underestimated, that their stimulus spending is likely to create less of an economic impact than they are forecasting. So where do you think that leaves the the federal budget and the the giant hole that we're going to have to climb out of fiscally when the pandemic is over? Well, this was uh, Yves Giroud warning again. It wasn't the first time that he said this, that, uh, that there was been a miscalibration here, uh, that the federal government had essentially said it was going to spend 70 to $100 billion in stimulus with the objective of returning labor markets to where they were pre-pandemic. Well, labor markets are heading to where they were pre-pandemic anyway. You know, we've, we saw in uh, February, I think it was... Uh, the unemployment rate was at 7.5%. It's clearly heading towards, according to all private sector economists, pre-pandemic levels at the latest by next year. So there's, there's questionable need for this, this huge amount of money that obviously sends the, uh, the uh, deficit soaring and debt levels towards $1.4 by the end of the, the, um, the, the forecast window in the budget. Um, now, Giroux estimated that uh, somewhere around uh, 70%, I think, of this, this money was could, only, could be classed as stimulus. The rest was really just spending. That's being generous, I think. Uh, David Dodge in the Global Mail last week suggested that only 25% of that money is actually uh, going to add to the public or private investment with the rest consumption. Now, David Dodge, former Bank of Canada governor, has been the kind of intellectual godfather for the Trudeau Liberals. You know, it's his, he endorsed the idea of using temporary deficits to finance productivity and enhancing infrastructure investments in 2015. Uh, so when he turns around and says he's sceptical that this budget is, is a growth budget, as the Liberals have positioned it, then I think people should start to listen. There were a bunch of other people who you would think were fellow travellers or allies of the Liberals who have been critical of this budget, including Mark Carney, the former Bank of Canada, Bank of England governor, and Robert Asselin, who was a, a former budget and policy advisor to Bill Morneau. He said that this budget was a political solution in search of an economic problem. And I think he's right in that. I think that this is really um, aimed at getting the Liberals re-elected rather than generating growth, even by the budget's own assumptions. You get good growth this year, as we kind of slingshot out of COVID. We get 4% growth next year, but then we end up back at 2% growth. And the budget doesn't seem to be able to budge that growth upward. So I do think that, that um, you know, it really was a missed opportunity. If, you, if you're going to spend this amount of money, at least spend it on things that are going to generate capital investment, provide incentives for private investment, or ideally both. And I don't think that while $12 billion to bolster old age security is good news for seniors, it doesn't do much to boost long-term growth. 
All right, let's talk about immigration. Uh, Federal Immigration Minister Marco Mendocino is saying that he is working to address concerns about a program that launches today uh, for uh, that would grant permanent residency to thousands of temporary foreign workers and international students who have graduated. Something like 90,000 uh, people qualify under this program. Um, and uh, this is all about boosting immigration numbers, but there are, there are criticisms of uh, various different groups uh, about the approach that the government is taking. So what's the latest on this? Well, I think that's a bit of a red herring. I mean, I, I realize that there are groups that are not included in this in the 90,000 number and they're upset but the bigger picture is we are almost eradicating the the line between permanent residents and people who come in here on temporary visas you know if you if you come in as a on a student visa or you come in on a a temporary work visa to work in healthcare or uh, any number of other areas that the government considers essential then you're eligible now to apply for permanent residency status, which is huge. I mean, that's a brand new concept. And the idea is that to generate economic growth, Canada needs immigration. And this minister has got very ambitious targets for for the next three years. 1.2 million new Canadians in the next three years, 400,000 this year in the middle of a pandemic. And I think, uh, so they they obviously look around and go, well, how are we going to get 400,000 new Canadians in the middle of a pandemic when travel is pretty much restricted and, you know, there are hotspots all around the world in the places that normally recruit new Canadians from. So one answer is to attract the people who are already here, who are already working, who are already studying, to get them to stay. I think it's a smart idea. The opposition is on side with it. It's... uh, the, op- the only real opposition to that idea is from people who say it should be more. Um, but I think, you know, there are logistical reasons why it can't be more. We've already got backlogs. The At least these people are sort of 50% processed already because they're already in the system. But the questions I was raising today are, you've then still got 300,000 uh, people you're still trying to attract in the middle of a pandemic. Is it really a good idea to bring in that massive influx of people when we are still fighting the virus? And, you know, we're still trying to restrict travel. We've, we've, uh, we've cut down flights from India and Pakistan, and we get a huge number of new Canadians from both of those countries. I'm not of a, f- a firm view on this. I'm a big supporter of mass immigration. I think it's the only way that, we, that Canada keeps up its growth, given our uh, aging population and our low birth rate. But I do wonder whether there should be a temporary pause just because we're, uh, are we are we importing new variants of the disease? We, I don't think we know that yet. Mm. All right, John, great to have your thoughts on all of this today. Thank you for joining us. Thanks a lot, Mark. That's John Iveson of the National Post. I can assure you that our decisions will be based on science uh, and the fact that those decisions are ongoing uh, and those discussions are ongoing right now means that uh, we will be uh, aligned with our partners around the world. Now here's what political columnists and commentators are writing about today. In the Toronto Star, Vivek Krishnamurthy and Colleen Flood argue it's no longer a question of having vaccine passports but how they should be designed. They write, 
Now is the time to consider who will provide such passports and how they should be deployed. There are good reasons for Canadians to be concerned about privacy, but good policy can mitigate privacy concerns. Social justice is best advanced by ending the pandemic and restoring life as quickly as possible. If vaccine passports can help do that, then we should call upon our governments to put systems in place with sufficient safeguards for important values like privacy. At ctvnews.ca, Don Martin argues being Jason Kenney is the worst job in politics today. Martin writes, It's a uniquely tricky business to govern Alberta, even in good times, where voters are happiest with the least amount of government in their lives. Mix an oil industry meltdown with enterprise-killing lockdowns and hospitals near the breaking point, and you create the perfect storm of angry opposition. In just the last few weeks, Kenny has simultaneously infuriated the entire province, divided his own party, and created the continent's worst healthcare crisis. That's quite the dubious accomplishment. In the Globe and Mail, Conrad Yakabuski argues it's amateur hour in Ottawa as the Heritage Minister seeks to salvage the botched broadcasting bill. Yakabuski writes, It was a mistake to hand the Heritage portfolio to a former environmental activist known for taking on big business and fighting for more government regulation. Once an activist, always an activist. And regulating the internet is a far bigger deal than Stephen Gilboa has ever been prepared to admit. Now, here's what's coming up on Canada's political agenda. MPs on a parliamentary committee will hear testimony from the chief of staff of Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny. As CPAC's Martin Stringer reports, this comes two weeks after MPs on the committee were victims of a Russian prankster impersonating their witness. Mark, MPs on the Commons Foreign Affairs Committee, as part of their ongoing investigation of international human rights, will hear this afternoon via video conference from Leonid Volkov. Volkov is the chief of staff for Alexei Navalny. Navalny is a prominent Russian opposition leader, an anti-corruption crusader, who survived an attempted poisoning, allegedly at the hands of Russian security services. Navalny is now serving another prison term on what are widely considered to be trumped-up charges for his opposition to President Vladimir Putin. His chief of staff, Volkov, will speak to MPs about the state of human and political rights in Putin's Russia. He'll also give an update on Navalny's health, as many people are very much afraid for his very survival as a political prisoner in the Russian prison system. The only bizarre twist, though, to this whole testimony is that two weeks ago, in another sitting of the committee, MPs were victims of a very embarrassing prank. Two high-profile Russian pranksters succeeded in impersonating Navalny's chief of staff, unbeknownst to the MPs on the committee. The prank was later revealed on the prankster's YouTube site. These are the same Russian pranksters who, a few years ago, duped Prime Minister Trudeau into thinking he was speaking with environmental activist Greta Thunberg. Now, the testimony two weeks ago to the committee was held behind closed doors or in camera for security reasons. But Mark, today's testimony with Navalny's real chief of staff will be televised at 3.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Thanks, Martin. Also today, the Prime Minister will meet virtually with the Executive Committee of the Canadian Teachers Federation... And he will join a virtual iftar for Ramadan. NDP leader Jagmeet Singh will hold a news conference to speak about housing. He will also meet with the president of the Manitoba Métis Federation. Fisheries Minister Bernadette Jordan, Government House Leader Pablo Rodriguez, and Environment Minister Jonathan Wilkinson will make an announcement via a virtual news conference. 
and Economic Development Minister Melanie Jolie will host an Atlantic Women in Business Forum. And that's CPAC Today in Politics for Thursday, May the 6th. Tune into Primetime Politics tonight on CPAC for coverage of all the day's events. Our podcast returns tomorrow morning. Have a great day.